star at the sidebar and talk about uh, apocalyptic and particularly Daniel, what's going on, the big picture. And then we'll jump into seven and we'll kind of walk it through. Make sense? Uh, because basically what I'm going to say fits for all the chapters. But it is unrelenting, sustained, apocalyptic for six chapters. So uh, before we enter that black hole <laughs> from which nobody has ever quite returned, uh, we're just going to take a step back and big, uh, big picture stuff. Now, since the Dead Sea Scrolls were released, and particularly since the second round of them were released in the 1990s, uh, there's been a wealth of uh, scholarship that's come out uh, books like The Apocalyptic Imagination by uh, John Collins, one of the, the great stars of this, this stuff. Apocalypse in the, in the Bible and the World. That just came out about three months ago. Wonderful book. Uh, Revolt of the Scribes by Horsley has uh, been out for a few years, uh, but kind of captures it. But the book I really want to use today is Apocalypse Against Empire. came out about two months ago. Uh, it feels like a doctoral dissertation that's been written you know, to be more of a book. Uh, wonderful scholarship and probably just a, a bright young scholar. Does the best job of anything I've ever read on the big picture apocalyptic, what's really going on, what it's about, and then works with the three apocalypses that were written for the uh, Antiochus Epiphanes crisis, uh, which would be two of them were in the book of Enoch and the one dead. But the stuff in Daniel is just outstanding. So the goal is, is that what I'm going to do for about the next 10 minutes can help us understand the big picture. What is going on? What are the historical realities that underlie this? Why is this material written? What is its message? What is it trying to convey? You know, why did it wind up in that way? Because behind all the images, behind all the dreams, behind all the visions, there's a message. And so what we're going to try to do is kind of grab hold of that message. Um, here's the big picture. And this is, we began with the stuff we've been talking about for the last seven weeks. The big picture is, is that this material comes to us after, during, and then after the exile. The Jewish nation has been destroyed. Jerusalem has been destroyed. The temple has been destroyed. There is no more king, and they're carried into exile. And for hundreds of years, they live under the sway of this one empire after another, Babylonian, Median, Persian, Greek, and then the Greek part changes, which is very relevant for, for Daniel, for nearly 400 years. Remember the letter of Jeremiah, which is basically advice from Jeremiah that basically um, don't fight this. This is of God. God is behind what's going on. So when you go there, just sink some roots in. You know, marry, have kids, have your kids have kids. You're going to be here for a while, and there's a purpose behind all this. Now, Daniel 1 through 6 are all stories that the scholars say are probably written before the crisis in 167. These are all go back to the Babylonian period or the Persian period. And what they are is they're stories of struggle. And they're stories of how God's people prevail in the struggle when the world is controlled by people who are not part of you. And they, they've destroyed everything that you know. Everything changes in 167. It's like the Holocaust of the 1930s and 40s. It's one of the most traumatic experiences the Jewish people have ever experienced. You ever heard of Hanukkah? Okay, Hanukkah comes from the end of this crisis when they went back to the temple, rededicated it, and lit the candles, and they burned eight days instead of one. And so Hanukkah comes from there. This is one of the most well-documented events in history. 
First Maccabees, massive book, it's written about this. Second Maccabees is written about this. Daniel is written about this. Two apocalypses in the book of Enoch. The apocalypse of dreams and the apocalypse, of, uh, the, the animal apocalypse are both written. So we have, a, we have a wealth of information about the period and the events that gave rise to Daniel 7 through Daniel 12. And we're blessed to have that. Uh, Antiochus Epiphanes was of the Greeks, but for a long time, like a hundred years, Palestine and the Jewish people were controlled by that group of Greeks that were basically in Egypt, the Ptolemies. Remember Cleopatra? She wasn't Egyptian. She was a Greek. She was a Ptolemy. And they ruled there for a long time. But just before this, just a few years before, the Seleucids up in Syria in the north had come down and conquered Palestine, taking it away from the Ptolemies. This is stuff Bill, I think, went over that and covered uh, not too long ago. Shortly after that, the Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus IV, issues this edict. And the world, by the way, has never seen anything like this. There's nothing like this in the Syrian period. There's nothing like it in the Babylonian period or the Median period or the Persian period. For the first time in recorded history, a government issues an edict, the purpose of which is to eradicate off the face of the earth somebody's religion. And that's, that has never, has never happened before. Among the things that are outlawed in this edict, this is, this is a historical document, this is his history, this is not literature, it's history. Sacrifices in the temple were outlawed. Gone. Because we're going to be worshiping Greek gods at the temple. Sabbath observance. If you did it, you died. That simple. Circumcision. Outlawed. Second Maccabees has these stories of women who had their sons circumcised anyway. Tied the babies around the necks of the mothers. And threw them off the top of the temple down 85 feet. And killed them. And we have independent corroboration of that from Josephus. Observance of the law. Banned. Possession of Torah scrolls. Death penalty. So systematically, down you'd go. Every single thing that constituted the Jewish faith had been outlawed. Instead, what were they required to do? They were required to worship other gods, the Greek gods. They were required to do it at the altar in the temple dedicated to Yahweh. So it's not enough you're going to worship these foreign gods. You're going to be mandated. You're going to do it at the altar where you used to worship the God of the Jews. First and second Maccabees give an account of the crisis and explain why. A couple of readings. Second Maccabees. The Jews were taken under bitter constraint to partake of the sacrifices. This is the Greek ones. And when the festival of Dionysius, remember that? Good Greek name was celebrated, they were compelled to wear wreaths of ivy and to walk in the procession in honor of Dionysus. So they're being required to practice, at least outwardly, the religion of the Greeks. First Maccabees. They were to make themselves abominable by everything unclean and profane. Pork, forbidden. They were force-fed pork. They were made to eat pork. Anything that Torah said don't do, the state said you will do and will force you or you and your family will pay the price. You'll be killed. What was the purpose? Here's the purpose. So that they would forget the law 
and change all their ordinances. What does that mean? Eradicate the faith totally. You are a part of this new Seleucid Empire. Like it or not, you will be a part of the Seleucid Empire and you'll worship our gods. And this nonsense about worshiping your God and all that stuff is the thing of the past. All the scholarship says the rise of apocalyptic, which happened at precisely this moment, is a direct response to this crisis. One where compromise was no longer possible. For 400 years, the Jews have been walking this delicate dance between we want to be faithful to God, but we want to prosper in this, this foreign empire, and it's a delicate balance. Well, all of a sudden, 167, the rules changed. There's no way to walk the line anymore. You simply cannot do it. So in its essence, apocalyptic is a way of fighting oppression and the pressure. And this is what you'll, you'll find over and over again. Apocalyptic is a literature of resistance. Apocalyptic is a way to fight the oppressor and to fight the edict and to fight all the things that are being imposed on you. Apocalyptic deals with the crisis by using Israel's faith traditions to reframe reality. This is one of the things, this, this one book I was sharing with you, she, she hones in on it in a beautiful kind of way. The purpose of apocalyptic is to say what we're being told by the governing powers is not reality. There is an alternative reality. And apocalyptic is going to show that reality to us. The imagery of the visions draws in the scriptures. So when we begin to have these visions, it, it's not going to be surprising that you're going to see echoes of, well, just think about it. What would you draw from the Jewish tradition as the most powerful experiences or, or symbols? or Exodus, right, and creation. The creation story and the Exodus story are where most of these symbols are going to come from. We're going to see both of those in chapter 7. So the key to fighting oppression is knowledge. Your back's against the wall. The Seleucid Empire wants to eradicate your faith. You've got to fight them. But it, the interesting thing about Daniel is Daniel advocates nonviolent resistance. The other two apocalypses in Enoch both support the Maccabees in grabbing the sword and killing people. Daniel is a nonviolent resistance manual. So how do you fight non-resistance? Well, knowledge is your power, not the sword, knowledge. If you have the right knowledge, knowledge that can only come from God, then you can fight. You won't fight by picking up a sword, but you can still fight. To see things not as they appear to be, because what it appears like is the Seleucids have all everything on their side. They're going to win. They're going to get their way. The Jewish faith is a thing of history. Now, if the Seleucids had won, there would be no Jews today. What does that tell you? The Seleucids lost. And Judaism survived in no small part due to apocalyptic as a very effective means of fighting oppression and the pressure. We want to show the way it really is. This knowledge is communicated by visions and dreams because your eyes tell you one thing, right? What do your eyes tell you? Your eyes tell you that the, that, you know, the Seleucids are the deal, 
You know, they've got all the things on their side. So you have to have an alternative vision. It's not going to come from your eyes. It's going to come from visions and dreams and symbols to paint that. So in Daniel 10, we're going to get like a layer cake, okay? Daniel 7 is going to lay some stuff down, but then 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12 add more and more detail, more substance. Fast forward to 10. This is an angel, angelic being, speaking to Daniel, and this is inside of a dream. This is inside of a vision. Daniel, greatly beloved, pay attention to the words that I'm going to speak to you. It's an audition in the sense that it's words, but this is inside of a vision. So it's part of a vision, okay? And take your stand. Pay attention to what the vision tells you, and based on that, you can take your stand. You can stand firm. I've come to help you understand what is to happen to your people. And if you understand, if you understand correctly, you know what to do. And that's the big picture. This knowledge has specific content, and we're going to see this today in chapter 7. We're going to see it in all these visions. The, the, the visions focus on who is God. You're going to be reminded of what God has done, in particular two things, creation and the Exodus story. And we're going to be assured that this God of creation, this God of the Exodus, will act again on your behalf. The core message is a simple one. Despite appearances, God is in control. It may not, your eyes may, your, your eyes may say that's not true. Your eyes may say God is not in control. God would not allow this stuff to happen. The, the Seleucids must have all the power. God is faithful. God will deliver. Chapter 7 says that. Chapter 8 says that. Chapter 9 says that. Chapter 10 says that. Chapter 11 says that. Chapter 12 says that. Matter of fact, each chapter says it more than once. It's just, it comes down like rain over and over and over. For our part, as people who object, we need to be faithful. We need to cling to what we know to be true. Uh, to resist. Now, how do we resist? Uh, we have the wisdom and the knowledge. We have power. We have that in uh, chapter 2. We've already covered that, but we can go back as well as forward. To you, O God, of my ancestors, I give a thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom, and guess what? And power. Because knowledge is power. You have enabled me to understand. And with that, I can go. The visions paint an alternative reality, a framework for understanding the crisis. Uh, the visions are going to place the suffering that is happening in 167, that story, inside a larger story. And the story is a story of what God has done, what God is doing, what God will continue to do. The visions give hope, and they open up new possibilities. Because once people have knowledge, and once they wake up to what's really happening, they act. And if they do that, it's a game changer. The world is not the same as it was before. The call to God's people to action is to remain faithful to God in the covenant. Refuse the edict, though it might, it might cost you your life. Hold fast to the things that give us identity, in this case as Jewish people. So we're going to be very, very concerned about the Jewish kosher laws. What's the number one issue in Daniel 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6? What would Daniel not do? Won't eat the king's food because he's clinging to his tradition. Sabbath observance, circumcision, Torah. By the way, those are the four things 
that Antiochus Epiphanes in the Edict of 167 tried to eradicate that and, and uh, sacrifice to the temple. Chapter 7 begins with a beast who threatened God's people, then moves to a vision of God in heaven, enthroned, and then delivers the message, this is what God is going to do. That help a little? Okay, that's the big picture. So that's the template. Let's play that template on seven and see what we got. So what are we going to start with? Critters. <laughs> we got beasts, and they're nasty. In the first year of King Belshazzar of Babylon, remember chapter five? Handwriting on the wall, Belshazzar's feast. Okay, chapter eight also is Belshazzar. So he's actually in three temples. Uh, next week will be year two of King Belshazzar. In the first year of King Belshazzar Babylon, as he lay in his bed, Daniel had a dream. Now until he now, what's been happening? The king has a dream. And then we get who to, to interpret. Who are you going to call? <laughs> Ghostbusters? No, you call Daniel. He's going to fix you up. What happens when Daniel has a dream? And Daniel can't understand it. Okay. An angelic being in a dream or in a vision will give him to that. Daniel had a dream, visions in his head. He wrote down the dream. Now, that's something you find in the prophets. The prophets very often would write down a message. Why? Because people aren't listening to the message. Therefore, write it down and preserve it, and maybe at a later date, somebody might actually pay attention. Isaiah does that. Jeremiah does that. Several prophets do that. I, Daniel, saw in my vision at night. Now, this is a little deal you're going to see over and over and over. Daniel does not say anywhere in the book, I actually saw it. What does he tell you instead? It's a dream. It's a vision, and which accounts for some of the, the imagery. This is, this is what he sees in his vision, his dream. Four winds of heaven. In the ancient world, there were four winds, right? The north wind, the south wind, the east wind, the west wind, from four directions. Four winds of heaven stirring up a great sea. Four great beasts came out of the sea. That reads just like the book of Revelation, doesn't it? Guess where Revelation got the imagery? The book of Daniel, okay? And this gets pulled in. Four beasts, different from one another. The first was like a lion, had eagle's wings. As I watched, the wings were plucked off. Lion's having a bad day. It was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a human being. And a human mind was giving to it. Now, anybody in the ancient world knew what this was. You ever seen these in pictures? Okay. What empire are we in now? This is actually Babylonian. But it actually occurs first in as Assyria. So Assyrian Babylonian. So in the world, that, that is, this is uh, a figure that anybody would recognize. Another beast appeared. A second one. It looked like a bear. It was raised up on one side and three tusks or maybe three ribs. You know, it's been eating an animal. It could be three ribs. It's, it's not clear. Three tusks in its mouth among its teeth and was told, Arise, devour many bodies. After this, as I watched, another appeared like a leopard. The beast had four wings of a bird on its back and four heads. And dominion was getting, and by the way, this imagery gets pulled directly in the book of Revelation. Now, from what we talked before, Bill talked and I've talked, do you remember an empire that when its leader died, it divided into four parts and had four heads? 
Alexander the Great died, and it was divided into four parts. After this, I saw in the visions at night, didn't literally see it, visions at night, a fourth beast. Now, this is the one that Daniel really wants to talk about. Terrifying and dreadful, exceedingly strong, great iron teeth, was devouring, breaking in pieces, trampling what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that preceded it. There's something about this beast. We ain't ever seen this before. It had ten horns. I was considering the horns when another horn appeared, a little one. Little wannabe, little, little pipsqueak there, a little put-down language there, coming up from among them to make room for it. Three of the earlier horns were plucked up by their roots. So to arise, this horn dispatches three others, okay? There were eyes like human eyes on the horn. It's watching us. And the mouth speaking arrogantly. Another place, blasphemy. So the vision begins with the sea and the wind. Uh, now, if we know the traditions of Israel, the creation story, the Psalms, and others, we know that water is a very familiar symbol for the destructive power of chaos. Remember Genesis 1.1? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the waters. Before God goes to work, what is there? Water. Chaos. And out of this, God will separate the waters and bring the creation in, in the, into place. God's power over the sea is not only part of the creation story, it's also part of the Exodus tradition. You remember, this, this is your test, Sunday school test. Where was water? Where did God control the water? The crossing of the Reed Sea separated the waters. Isaiah picks this up with this language. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep? So, Part of the tradition of Israel is water represents all the chaotic forces and who can control the power of chaos. God has the power to control chaos. Because it was symbolized chaos and because sometimes chaos walks on two feet and carries swords, this also became an image for dealing with that kind of person too. Isaiah 17. Ah, the thunder of many peoples. They thunder like the thundering of a sea. Ah, the roar of nations, they roar like the roaring of mighty waters. The nations roar like the roaring of mighty waters, but he, who would he be? God, will rebuke them, and they will flee far away. So chaos comes in many forms. One of the forms that chaos comes to, particularly in the ancient world, is some foreign army would suddenly show up in your door, and your entire world would be destroyed. And here, God's power is affirmed there. So in the vision... We got all this symbolism of chaos, and out of the chaos, out of the water, rises the four beasts. The book of Revelation. Do you know where the beast rises from? The sea. So this, this imagery is consistent. That beast come from the sea is also part of Israel's tradition, Isaiah 27.1. By the way, remember, uh, the Israelites are basically Bedouin. They're basically desert people. So what would scare them more than anything else in the world? water okay and you look out in the water and there's critters out there <laughs> and that's not good Jonah's story is part of that on the day the Lord on that day the Lord with a cruel and great and strong sword 
God's going to do some whooping up here, okay? Will punish Leviathan. Remember Leviathan? The great sea serpent. Uh, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent. And he will kill the dragon. Later, dragon becomes an image for Satan, the devil, the dragon that is in the sea. Um, so God has power over this. Fourth beast, the one that Daniel really cares about, will be described in increasing detail in what's going For right now, we're, we're not going to get much detail because he's teased us. He's going to come back to the four in a minute and talk about it. The, remind, the author reminds us that these four uh, are part of a vision. They're not real. And he says a little interesting thing that they look like beasts. Because he wants to remind you, that we're not talking about real critters here. We're talking about a different kind of critter. I think two legs, two arms, yeah. The reality, there's something else. And a little bit later, he's going to interpretation, he's going to tell us more about that. The vision then shifts from the problem, chaos, to the solution. And who do you think the solution comes from? The solution will come from God. It's verse 9. As I watched, you've just seen all this powers of chaos. Thrones were set in place. And an ancient one, remember the... the title ancient of days comes from this is the first time we ever see this language comes from daniel the ancient one took his throne his clothing was white as snow his hair on his head like pure wool his throne fiery flames the throne's got wheels god's throne has got wheels it's mobile and it's coming, okay? Uh, a stream of fire issued and poured forth from his presence. A thousand thousands, do your math, how many is that? One million served him. 10,000 times 10,000, a little harder math. 100 million attend him. The court, shift the metaphor. The court set in judgment. This is one of the earliest references to what will eventually develop into the, the concept of the last judgment. But here we have God and God's majesty and God the throne and the fire and why, what is God doing? He's about to judge. And the books are opened. Were you raised like I was that God kept a book, kind of like Santa Claus? <laughs> and you ain't going to fool God, so you behave yourself, okay? As I watched, this is repeated over and over and over. It, it's the language of vision. Uh, Daniel is being presented an alternative reality. Nowhere in here does it say this is the way things are. This is the way things will be once God is done. God takes his seat. Uh, all the imagery is the majesty and power of God. We also have imagery of judgment. Again, one of the earliest references to that. We have... Uh, the dominant image in all this material is uh, that of fire. And uh, by the way, where do all of Daniel's images come from? Jewish tradition. Do you remember where fire comes from? Hmm? Holy Spirit. That'd be a later Christian interpretation. Yeah, we, we associate Pentecost. Right. Pentecost. But direct continuity. Direct continuity. Burning bush. And Mount Sinai, cloud descended, and there's fire everywhere. And that is symbolism for when fire and lightning and cloud descend from heaven 
and a light on Sinai. Who do you think just arrived? Okay, you got it. This is found in the Exodus story. It's found in the prophets. It's found a lot in Enoch. By the way, the two apocalypses of en en Enoch that are written at the exact same time Daniel is have almost the exact same language. And so we'll see some of that in just a second. Exodus 19. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke. Why was it wrapped in smoke? Because the Lord had descended upon it in fire. So fire and smoke becomes an image. Then we also have the, the burning bush imagery there. And again, uh, there's a bush that's burning but not consumed. And the voice comes from that and speaks to, again, meta metaphorical language. But out of the fire, God speaks. Fire also carries a, a sense of great destruction, doesn't it? You ever been near a house when it burned to the ground? When Barbara and I were first married out in near Paris, Texas, the house next door caught fire and within three, four minutes was entirely consumed. And just to watch, I mean, fire is in immensely destructive. But it enhances, this fire language enhances the judgment metaphor. Isaiah 66, one of Isaiah likes the fire image a lot. For the Lord will come in fire. What's the Lord coming to do? Judge. This is judgment language. And his rebuke in flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord execute judgment. And that's a part of what's going on here. Psalm 97. The Lord is king. Let the earth rejoice. Fire goes before him and consumes his adversaries on every side. So part of that reframing that the vision will do is the Greeks who seem omnipotent and God who seems impotent in the vision, where does the power really reside? It resides with what your eyes tell you does not have the power. Wheels and chariot of fire. Uh, God's throne in this time is described as a war chariot. There were no chariots in the ancient world that were not war chariots, okay? It was the Abrams A1M1 battle tank, okay? Get behind some horses, get up there a little bit higher. You got one guy riding, maybe a couple of archers or spear throwers, and that would put terror in anybody. So what is God's throne described as? A mobile war implement coming up. In Daniel, there's never any advocacy of violence on the part of the people. You leave that to God. God will make things right, and the war chariot imagery comes out. And by the way, it's a coming. The books are open. They announce judgment and deliverance. They announce judgment to one group. Bad news to some. Good news to the other group. Uh, this is what's known as part of the heavenly tablets tradition. Uh, remember in the book of Exodus, God, uh, and the first time, and Moses dropped the first ones, but the first time the Ten Commandments were written, who wrote them? God wrote them. It says the finger of God on stone. So they were literally written in stone. Enoch 103. For I know a mystery. Same, same visionary type stuff. I know something you don't know. You know. What do I know? I've read the tablets of heaven. I have seen the holy writings. Now, what might be on those that you wouldn't know unless... You read them. They come from heaven, so it's whatever God knows, not what we would know. Enoch 106. I know the mysteries of the holy ones, for he, the Lord, has revealed them to me and made me know, and I have read them on the heavenly tablets. So part of this tradition. 
In other words, what God is about to do is written in stone, which means no erasing. It's going to happen. You can put it in the bank. Um, the judgment in chapter s uh, 7, verse 11. I watched then because of the noise of the arrogant words that the horn was speaking. And as I watched, the beast was put to death. No, there's no Armageddon. There's no big battle. There's just no nothing. It's just like a, can like a candle, just out. God just wipes him off the face of the earth. Its body destroyed, was given over to burning with fire. There, the fire imagery comes back. For as the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives prolonged for a season and a time. So we've got that the beast will be destroyed very quickly. God's power is omnipotent and simply will take the beast out. But you still are dealing with the effects of it, which is very real. I mean, if you're living in 167, it's very real. God may win, but you still have people at your door. Um, now the vision introduced one of the most enigmatic figures in Scripture. And by the way, this is one of the figures that has played a huge role in Jewish faith and in Christian faith. You ever hear of something called the Son of Man? This is where it ended. This in Ezekiel. Daniel 7, 13. As I watched in the night visions, still a vision, I saw one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient One, was presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and kingship that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Obviously, he's a very significant figure. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away. His kingship is one that shall never be destroyed. Again, Exodus imagery. Uh, you probably realize that in the Exodus story, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. Uh, picked up in the Psalms, you make the clouds your chariot, you make the winds your messengers, fire and flame your ministers. So fire is a symbol for God, clouds are symbol God. The Son of Man comes with the clouds, with God's power. One like the Son of Man, Ezekiel, this is actually in the Old Testament twice. In the book of Ezekiel, Son of Man is a, is a phrase that God says to Ezekiel to remind him that you're just a dirt ball. Okay, remember Adam? Adam is Adama, from dust you are and dust you shall return. It's simply a reminder you're human, nothing more. In the book of uh, Daniel, it's entirely different. This is a figure who has dominion and glory and kingship. This is a semi-divine figure. He's been sent by God to do God's bidding. Jesus, of all the time, by the way, we, as far as we know, Jesus never referred to himself as, as Messiah. The title that Jesus preferred to refer to himself over and over 90 times in the New Testament is what? Son of Man. And he identified with this. He also will then refer, because in one place Jesus said, and you will see the Son of Man coming in glory in the clouds. Where did that come from? It's lifted directly from the book of Daniel, but not referring to the earthly Jesus, but referring to a figure in the future, which is why the Son of Man became a symbol for the second coming of Christ in tradition. So when you see that artwork and Jesus is coming a second time, it's always with the clouds. With this, the vision comes to an end, but you've got to ask, what the heck just happened? You know, what is this about? What does this mean? Well, the closing part of da uh, Daniel 7 gives us the interpretation. As for me, Daniel, my spirit troubled within me. The visions of my head terrified me. 
I approach one of God's attendants, this is one of the hundred, no, one of the 100 million, and ask him the truth concerning all this. He said that he would disclose to me the interpretation of the matters. Little drum roll. Now the curtain's going to go back. We're going to know exactly what's going. As for the four great beasts, Book of Revelation does the exact same thing. You'll get an image, you'll just scratch your head and go, what the heck is that about? About three chapters later, he goes, oh, by the way, what I meant by that was this. The four great beasts, four kings shall arise out of the earth. Four empires, it says later. But the holy ones of the, by the way, that's it. Four shall arise. Let's move on to something better, okay? The holy ones. Who are the holy ones? The Jews, God's people. A lot of the Dead Sea Scrolls can refer either to angelic beings or to God's people on earth, probably God's people on earth. The holy ones of the Most High shall receive a kingdom. I like that. Possess the kingdom forever, unlike these other kingdoms that come and go. We repeat it again, forever and ever. Okay, four kingdoms. The idea here is that we're moving from the time the book is supposedly written to the time they live, from 6th century to 2nd century. We seem here to leave out the Medians. So the four kingdoms are Babylon. Anybody who looks at that thing is going to know what that means. Persia, a bear, very common symbol in the Persian Empire. Greek, Alexander died, four sub-kingdoms, four heads. The beast, ten horns and another horn. He didn't tell us yet what that is. But the focus of the message, again, is not the beast. What is the focus on? The kingdom. By the way, this is the first reference in history to the kingdom of God. Do you remember what Jesus came preaching? The kingdom of God. And Jesus uses the language of son of man. Jesus draws heavily on the book of Daniel. The kingdom is described in the same language. Uh, and the son of man seems to be the one who brings the kingdom. And unlike others, this kingdom will last forever. Um, this is the origin of our idea of the kingdom of God. This is the earliest reference we know to it. We're going to end here. What about the fourth beast? This is the only question he's left unanswered. Then I desired to know the truth concerning the fourth beast, which was different from the rest. Exceedingly terrifying. Its teeth were iron, claws of bronze. Now, if you're living in the ancient world and you hear the words iron and bronze, where does your mind go? Weapons, armament, war. Okay, So the fourth beast is some type of an empire, an army that's oppressing. It devoured and broke in pieces. It stamped what was left on its feet. This, this is a destructive power. And concerning the ten horns that were on its head, and concerning the other horn which came up, which knocked out three along the way, the horn that had eyes and a mouth and spoke arrogantly and that singled that horn, in case you forgot confused. As I looked, this horn made war on the holy ones. This is the little horn. And was prevailing over them until the ancient one came. When God came, it changed. Then judgment was given and the holy ones of the Most High and the time arrived. Then the holy ones gained possession of the kingdom. This is what he said. As for the fourth beast... There shall be a fourth kingdom. Babylonian, Persian, Greek. And what happened after 100 years of the Greeks with the Ptolemies? They were overthrown by the Seleucids who took over. That shall be different from all the other kingdoms. You better believe it was. 
They should devour the whole earth, trample it down, break it to pieces, drum roll, because this is what you've been waiting for. As for the ten horns out of the kingdom, ten kings shall arise. Guess how many Seleucid kings there were before Antiochus? Ten. Antiochus was the eleventh. Another shall arise after them. This one shall be different from all the former ones. You bet he was. And shall put down three kings. Antiochus assassinated and murdered three contenders to the throne before he took power. And this writer knows that. He shall speak words against the Most High, shall wear out the holy ones of the Most High, shall attempt to change the sacred seasons and the law. This is the reference to the Edict of Saturday. God's people should be given into his power for a time, two times, <coughs> time and a half. What would you calculate that to be? Three and a half years? The time from the time the, the temple was desecrated by Antiochus Epiphanes until the time it was rededicated by the Maccabees instituting Hanukkah, three and one half years. Okay. Then the court shall sit in judgment. Its dominion shall be taken away. It shall be consumed, totally destroyed. You've heard this before. The kingship, dominion, the greatness, the kingdoms under heaven shall be given to the people. It was earlier given to the Son of Man, given to the holy ones of the Most High, their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom. All dominions shall serve and obey them. Didn't quite play out that way, but it's a beautiful vision. Here the account ends. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly terrified me. My face turned pale, but I kept my mouth shut. Okay, <laughs> fourth beast. We're in the home stretch. Ten horns followed by eleventh. The eleventh, the little horn, is causing the crisis. Ten horns are the ten Seleucid kings. There's no question about this precede Antiochus. It's the only empire that had ten and then one. And by the way, just in case we're dense and don't get it, in chapter 11, he lays it out in great detail in, in 3 through 21. The coins of the Seleucid kings are, are, are stand out. Why? The Seleucid kings are the only ancient kings who are always betrayed with horns on their helmets. And then you get Antiochus's coins, it's even more striking. Daniel's calling him a little horn. is kind of a put down. Uh, they wage war against the saints. No empire had ever done this to anybody in the ancient world until Antiochus Epiphanes. First and second Maccabees lay out in great detail exactly what happens. Uh, here's first Maccabees 145. To forbid burnt offerings and sacrifices, to drink offerings in the sanctuary, to profane Sabbaths and festivals. This is what the Jews are being required to do. And then 1 Maccabees 56, 57. The books of the law that they found, they tore to pieces and burned with fire. This is a systematic program that Daniel alludes to and that Maccabees gives us all the details to. Anyone found possessing the book of the covenant? Jackson, we may just be okay. Anyone who adhered to the law? was contemned, condemned to death by the Greek king. So the last king, the little horn, followed ten other kings, subdued three kings, spoke against the Most High. By the way, he took the title Epiphanes. God manifest was the title for himself. He oppressed the saints. There's only one person in history that fits that description to a T. And the year 167, everything that Daniel has just described happened. And it came to pass... And the people of God were literally on the ropes. And it was not clear if they could actually survive. We ain't done. Next week, we'll overlay it, chapter 8, the ram 